I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019. Coming up, if you love strawberries, kale and other fruits and vegetables, but you worry about the health risks of chemicals in such food, well, it's for good reason. We'll discuss a new report by Environmental Working Group about pesticide residue in many crops we eat. Our two guests today are Sydney Evans from Environmental Working Group and investigative journalist Liza Gross, who has been covering these issues for several years. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Are you one of the millions of Americans who tried to catch up on sleep on the weekend after burning the candle at both ends during the work week? New research suggests this practice of catch-up may be bad for your long-term health. Scientists have known for years that too little sleep increases your risk for obesity and diabetes. It's not just from being awake longer and eating more. In addition, your body's response to insulin, the hormone that tells cells to take sugar out of the blood, drops when you don't get enough sleep. Other adverse health effects include increased risk for heart attack and cancer. Researchers at the University of Colorado Boulder wanted to see what happens when people cycle back and forth between short nights during the work week and two weekend days of catch-up. The researchers found 36 healthy adults aged 18 to 39 willing to live for two weeks in a laboratory where their food intake, light exposure and sleep were monitored. One group slept nine hours each night for nine nights. A second group got only five hours per night and a third group got five hours for five days, followed by a weekend of unlimited sleep and then two final days of restricted sleep. Both sleep-restricted groups snacked more, gained weight and had their insulin response decline. Those in the weekend recovery group saw mild improvements during the weekend, but those benefits disappeared when sleep restriction resumed. The weekend sleepers seemed to do worse on the insulin measure, and they found it harder to get to sleep on Sunday night because their body clocks had shifted. The bottom line is, try to get a consistent seven to eight hours of sleep as many nights as possible. The study was published last week in the journal Current Biology. This Sunday, on April 7th, at exactly 18 seconds after midnight, Universal Coordinated Time, or UTC, the Global Positioning System will undergo its equivalent of a Y2K event. Remember that? The Global Positioning System, or GPS, is a space-based radio positioning system of at least 24 satellites in medium Earth orbit. It is widely used today in commercial applications. Originally designed for military use, civilian use was allowed during, starting in 1980. The week is the largest unit of time for GPS civilian services. GPS Week Zero began on January 6, 1980. Due to how the messages from the satellites were defined, this week counts up to 1,023 and then rolls over back again to zero. That rollover is similar to Y2K and how computer systems that stored the year as only two digits rolled over in the year 2000. This GPS rollover happened once already on August 22, 1999. There were several problems with systems that relied on GPS, but back then, such systems were not in widespread commercial use. 
Today, GPS is pervasive. Very likely, it's the reason your smartphone knows what time it is. The cellular phone network depends on GPS time. Navigation systems of cars, boats, and airplanes all use GPS. Online financial transactions are time-stamped and ordered based on GPS time as well. So, April 7th, 2019 represents the beginning of GPS Week 2048. And so, the week number transmitted will roll over back to zero for a second time. There's been extensive testing, but today the world relies much more heavily on GPS than it did in 1999. And the systems are very complex, involving technology from hundreds of companies all over the globe. The exact local time for GPS rollover is 18 seconds after 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time this Saturday, April 6th. Each year on April 1st, news websites let their hair down, publishing outlandishly false stories as a practical joke for their readers. Well, as it turns out, these April Fool's hoaxes are good for more than just a quick laugh or an eye roll. Researchers from Lancaster University are using these April Fool's hoaxes to help us better identify malicious fake news stories. Language processing researchers Edward Dearden and Alistair Barron scoured hundreds of websites for April Fool's hoax articles, assembling a database of more than 500 articles written over a 14-year period. They then compared the April Fool's dataset to a fake news dataset compiled by another research group. While the April Fool's hoaxes and fake news articles were dissimilar in many ways, researchers found that both types of articles relied similarly on less complex language, more first-person pronouns and longer sentences than do real news articles. Both April Fool's hoaxes and fake news articles also frequently omit essential details, such as dates, names and locations. The researchers also created a machine learning classifier to identify fake news stories when fed a mix of real, fake and April Fool's news. After training, the classifier could identify fake news articles with an accuracy of more than 65%, a number which will only increase as the classifier is fed more training data. The study is currently awaiting publication. And on the science calendar this week, on Saturday, April 6th, Arapahoe Ski Basin area will be hosting its third annual climate panel. It's called The Future of Skiing, the Science Behind the Snow. The panel, which is open to the public, features climate research scientists and advocates who are focused on how climate change is affecting winter and the ski industry, especially here in Colorado. The panel will be moderated by Alan Herseroth, a Basin's chief operating officer. Panelists will include research scientists from NCAR, or the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and CU Boulder's Center for Water, Earth Science, and Technology, and some staff from the nonprofit Protect Our Winters, as well as from the National Ski Areas Association, will also attend. For more info on the panel, go to arapahobasin.com slash about slash sustainability. Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry Fields forever You're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So you may be wondering if you wash those strawberries that you just heard. 
blueberries or kale that you had for breakfast this morning, enough to rid them of residue from potentially harmful pesticides. That is, if they were conventionally, not organically grown. Well, according to recent tests conducted by the USDA, or the Department of Agriculture, more than 200 different pesticides remain in some form on popular fruits and vegetables that Americans eat every day. Even more alarming, before testing all the produce, the USDA thoroughly washed and peeled them, just as consumers would prepare food at home. The tests show that simply washing produce doesn't remove all the pesticides. In a recently released report, the nonprofit organization, the Environmental Working Group, ranked the pesticide contamination of 47 popular fruits and vegetables. Its analysis was based on results of nearly 50,000 samples of produce that the USDA tested. In this year's report, alas, kale ranks among the top three most contaminated food crops. But don't despair, there's also good news in this report from EWG. Our two guests today have been studying pesticides and their human health effects for years. Sydney Evans is a science analyst at the Environmental Working Group, and Liza Gross is an independent investigative reporter who writes a lot about environmental and human health. Sydney joins us via phone from her office in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Sydney. Thank you so much for having me. And Liza joins us from phone via phone from Berkeley, California. Thanks so much for waking up early to join us, Liza. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, too. So I want to jump in, uh, Sydney Evans, with you. Could you give us a bit of context and some detail in this recent report, which is also a shopper's guide? Right. So um, the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 list that you mentioned are parts of a bigger uh, overall shopper's guide analysis of pesticides in produce. So for the 2019 shopper's guide, we analyzed the results of those samples that you mentioned from USDA, FDA tests for the pesticides in produce. And then our team of scientists use our own algorithm to determine the variety of pesticides that are showing up on these produce, the amount of pesticides that are present. Uh, and we come up and we draw those conclusions that we report in the shopper's guide and, of course, rank the uh, produce in the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. One of the biggest takeaways from this guide this year is that 70% of the conventionally grown produce comes with some sort of pesticide residue on it, and it varies a little bit across the different crops. Boy, 70%. So did that surprise you? I mean, what really stands out? Uh, I mean, just, yeah, that, that's a lot. 70% is a lot of the samples, and those are the things that are showing up in grocery stores. And like you mentioned, these are things that have already been peeled, already been washed when they're being tested. And it's not just that it's a couple of pesticides. We looked at, uh, I think we came up with 225 different pesticides. And I think the biggest um, shakeup this year was that kale jumped up to number three on the list. 92% um, of the kale samples had at least two pesticides on them, and 60% uh, of those samples had a pesticide called Daxel, which has been classified as a possible human carcinogen and has been banned in the EU um, for at least a decade. Boy, so um, a little more on kale being number three. Does that suggest that there's actually more pesticide on kale than last year in previous years, or has it just not been tested in a long while? Or both? Uh, well, it, yeah, that's, you raise a good point. Um, so it has been a while since kale has been tested, but uh, when we compared the results from the last testing in 2009 to the most recent testing, which was incorporated into this shopper's guide, everything had gone up. So the number of pesticides, the number of uh, pesticides per sample, the average number found, uh, we found up to 18 
pesticides on one sample of kale. So that's surprising to me that it hadn't been tested in such a long time considering how popular it is and what a great health food it is um, and how it's been uh, consumed more and more. It's becoming more popular, um, and it hadn't been tested in almost 10 years. And all of these, it doesn't, it's not a matter of the pesticides going away. Um, it's just the fact that it wasn't been tested in so long. And it, that demonstrates some of the gaps that our current um, regulatory programs have in protecting human health. And I want to get to some of those gaps. Uh, Liza Gross, I want to turn to you. So you heard um, Sydney Evans say Dactyl was one of the key ones. And that, heck, 225 different pesticide showed residue in a bunch of these crops. We've got kale number three. Does that surprise you or sort of what stands out given what you know from your uh, investigative reporting in communities and all on Dactol and other pesticides? And when she says there's residue on many of these, to what degree should consumers be alarmed? Because some, you know, even low, low, low exposure is problematic, potentially carcinogenic, with others not so much. But what's your take? Well, most of my reporting focuses on risk to the communities, but I can certainly speak to um, what to think about in terms of low-level exposures to pesticides. So one thing that's really important that's come up over and over again in my reporting is that we are not protecting children. So the, the EPA, as, as Leo Trasande, um, in a, a pediatric environmental health expert, told me, that doses of pesticides, once considered safe, can harm developing bodies and brains. And the EPA really just doesn't take that into account when they approve pesticides. And so not only that, I mean, so there's just a heightened sense of uh, susceptibility for kids for a variety of reasons. And I can get into that later if you like. Yeah, well, but when you say the EPA doesn't take that into account, meaning it, do- it doesn't look at kids? What doesn't it? It doesn't set the thresholds based uh-huh. on the, the emerging um, evidence that we know that very low doses can sort of tweak developing systems. So basically, these, these as Leo also mentioned, these synthetic chemicals were not designed with hormonal biology in mind. And so when you think about the fact that when uh, a body is developing, especially from an infant through puberty, there are really rapid changes that happen with cells that are controlled by hormones. And a tiny little exposure of something that actually mimics, so a synthetic chemical that interacts with the same hormones that our own body's hormones interact with, Mm -hmm. that can just throw everything off. And that can lead to cancer years down the line. That we, we might not be able to see these effects right away, but they show up many years later. Boy, and in terms of uh, those that are endocrine disruptors and have other harmful effects, we talked of dactyl here. You've done a lot of work, unrelated, but somewhat related on, on dicamba. And then what about um, chlorpyrifos? that one of the big offenders as well and in, in many of the fruits and vegetables that people eat, at least conventionally? Are you asking? You're asking yeah. Me still alive, yeah. Um, so chlorpyrifos <clears throat> was detected in some of these. Uh, Sydney can speak to better um, what, where it showed up on the, on the Dirty Dozen list. But chlorpyrifos is one of the most well-understood insecticides that... Um, is out there. So thanks to work that researchers at UC Berkeley have done, they've been looking at these chemicals in a study called Chamacos, which is Mexican slang for little kids. They've been doing this for over 20 years. So they've been following pregnant women and their kids, measuring levels of pesticides in their blood and urine, and then looking at health outcomes. 
And so chlorpyrifos belongs to a class of chemicals called organophosphates. And what, what that particular chemical does is it interferes with a critical enzyme for nerve transmission. And so you can imagine developing kids, you, you, get ex- you either eat the you know, vegetables and fruit that have these residues on them or you're you know, near uh, communities where these chemicals are being sprayed and you're playing on the floor, and you just get all sorts of exposures through so many different pathways. And what this study has shown is that these organophosphates, kids have, when the kids with the highest levels of this in their bodies, have a range of developmental problems. They have poor reflexes and motor control. As, as infants, as they get older, they're more likely to be hyperactive, have trouble paying attention. And they also score lower on IQ tests and are more likely to have autism. There's just a whole range of things that happen with these exposures. Yeah, and um, Sydney Evans, from the work that you've done, and you worked on this algorithm and the testing that Environmental Working Group did, where does chlorpyrifos show up? Sure. So one of the most notable ones is if you actually look at our Dirty Dozen, it's actually um, more of a baker's dozen. <laughs> uh, hot yeah. peppers ended up at number 13 uh, because chlorpyrifos is just a nasty enough insecticide, as long as you know, along with some of the others that are showing up on hot peppers as well, that we wanted to include that for people that are eating a lot of hot peppers. Um, you may want to buy organic for those, and that just goes to show the levels that are showing up on a lot of these crops are perfectly legal. But legal does not always mean safe. Uh, EPA's own review from their scientists showed that based on diet studies and seeing the number of pesticides and residues on these crops. For things like chlorpyrifos, babies and pregnant women are getting five times more than what they consider safe before reaching these health effects. And for toddlers and children, it's even higher. It's uh, you know up to 15 times what may be safe. Um, so they're definitely at risk for these health effects, and they definitely are showing up in our, uh, you know, our dirty dozen and in, in the foods that... Uh, you know, we're bringing home and feeding to our families. Boy, and we'll continue with this. I'm going to take a little station break for those um, listeners who joined us late. This is How on Earth Science Show, KGNU. We're discussing a new report about pesticides in our fruits and vegetables and their effect on the health of consumers and farm workers and those in communities. And our guests are Sydney Evans, a science analyst at the Environmental Working Group, and Liza Gross, an independent investigative reporter in Berkeley who writes a lot about pesticides and human health for Reveal, for The Nation, and a bunch of other publications. So um, I wanted to continue. Liza Gross, maybe bring us right to a community where you have reported. doesn't necessarily need to be one of the pesticides in the dirty dozen, but... you know, showing that these are ones that not only workers are exposed to, but many consumers who are eating the fruits and vegetables and what you're seeing. Sure, sure. So I, I just wanted to also, um, just for a little bit of context, just to let people know what we're talking about, the sort of the volume of these chemicals. Farmers use about a billion pounds of pesticides a year <laughs> to grow our produce. And California um, produces most of um, our, you know, produces... I think something like three-quarters of the fruits, nuts, and vegetables that are produced in the United States come from California. Uh-huh. And they, they clo- use close to something like 210 million pounds of pesticides in one year alone, and sort of it goes up and down depending on weather and all that kind of thing. But so um, you had asked about um, dactyl. And so what I, 
what I often do is try to look to see um, where these, what communities might be most at risk. And time and again, mm-hmm. what I've found is that they tend to be communities of color and they tend to have high poverty rates. And when I looked at Dactyl, Dactyl um, which is also, it's not just used on kale, it's used on broccoli, cauliflower, and some other crops. Mm. I found that um, 380,000 pounds were used in California in one year, but in this little town of Kern County, um, which I is found sort that, of east of LA, right in the heart of the uh, Central Valley or sure. northeast? Yes, it's in the heart of the Central Valley. It's basically one of the richest agricultural regions in the, um, in the country. So the highest levels were in this little town where most residents are Latino and about 35% of people live below the poverty line. Mm. And um, as Sydney pointed out, this is something that the EPA has known as a possible human carcinogen for years. And so um, it's, highly, it's also, what I should say, highly volatile. And so it can, after it's applied, it can evaporate in the air and travel for miles. Mm. And I can, I can go on. <laughs> I looked at some other things. I'm not sure how. So there, there, I'll just tell you one other uh, town. Um, the, the recently, so one thing that the state does is it has air filters near schools, air monitors in schools in some places. And um, a few years ago, the the Department of Pesticide Regulation in California found the highest concentration of one of the fumigants that's used on strawberries. Um, it's called 13D, um, that they've ever measured, um, and it was right at a high school. And then when community groups asked about, you know, well, what are you going to do about this, these are levels that are even higher when you banned, you know, you temporarily banned the, that fumigant many years ago. What are you going to do about it now? And they said, oh, well, you know, this didn't really rise to a level to take action. And one of the members of the groups told me that they had actually, after the the levels had spiked really high for s- several times. The state just reduced the levels that they would need to take action. Boy, so um, in terms of historical context, Liza Gross, I want to ask you, you know, it's been, what, maybe four decades at least since Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers first started fighting for uh, more stringent regulations on pesticides, insecticides, and such, starting with grapes, right? I mean, has much changed, especially in terms of government oversight and, for that matter, industry policies on applications? Well, it has changed. The problem is, I mean, so the regulations are actually in place, but they have to be followed. And so I, there was actually a UCLA report, UCLA report, excuse me, a few, that came out a few years ago and said that California regulators aren't following their own rules, which, which mm. require two things which would really be really useful to protect public and environmental health. One is that you consider cumulative risks of these chemicals, which actually, you know, they, they can interact in ways that create even more toxic effects than if you're exposed to just one at a time, which we never are. And the other thing is they're supposed to consider safer alternatives to protect farm workers and others living and working near sprayed fields. And? Yet they're not doing yeah. either of those things. Boy, and this predates the Trump administration as well, I take it, or has it gotten worse in the last couple of years? Well, I could say one thing about the Trump administration. So, um, as Sydney referenced, uh, the, the EPA under Obama moved to ban chlorpyrifos, um, and then once the Trump administration set up shop, 
they uh, came in to save one of the most toxic and widely used insecticides, chlorpyrifos, calling it a return to sound science, which it, of course, was not. Yeah. Well, Sydney Evans, uh, we, we just have time for another question or two, but I wanted to ask you, since you said, gee, great to eat organic, I mean, for those who are living paycheck to paycheck or on food stamps, for that matter, it sounds kind of elitist or foolish to suggest that, or, or does it not? Can you actually absolutely. eat safely and economically? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's the whole goal behind the Shopper's Guide is to empower people to make these choices to reduce their pesticide burden, whether they're shopping organic or whether it's not available. Um, the number one thing we want people to do is eat their fruits and veggies, <laughs> of course. <laughs> that's a really important part uh, of the diet. Everybody needs to be doing that and eating more fruits and vegetables. And we do want people buying organic when possible. Uh, but we recognize that it's not possible for everyone. It's not always available. It's not always affordable. Um, so that's why we have two lists, the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. So, right. I want to um, ask you about the Clean 15. So there's right. good news there. So uh, the, the Dirty Dozen are the ones where if you can... If you can get it, if you can afford it, buy the organic version of those dozen fruits and vegetables. The Clean 15, however, you may be able to get by with um, get the conventional versions. Uh, sweet corn, I think avocados, uh, less than 1% of those samples had any pesticides on them, and those are conventional produce. They're not mm -hmm. organic. Um, so people have those options. And, of course, always wash your produce because, like you mentioned at the beginning, these are the levels that we're seeing after everything's been peeled and washed. And people can take action immediately. I don't want anyone to feel um, that it's too late or they can't do enough. There's always something that you can do. Uh, that's what these lists and these guides are for. You can take action immediately and switch to low or no pesticide options and make an immediate difference in your body and in your life. Well, thank you. We'll definitely continue conversation about um, more pesticides and what consumers and, and community members can do. That was Sydney Evans, a science analyst at the Environmental Working Group, and Liza Gross, an independent investigative reporter who writes a lot about pesticides and their impact on environment and human health. Sydney, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And Liza, thank you for coming on. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by me, Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Chip Granditz, Beth Bennett and Gretchen Wetstein. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from The Beatles. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. <laughs>